0: Section 6 of Psychological Warfare This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger The Limitations of Psychological Warfare, Part 1 Psychological warfare cannot be known simply in terms of what it is, it must also be understood in relation to the limits which are imposed on it. The limitations can be described under four headings, political limitations, security limitations, limitations arising from media, limitations of personnel. Like all limitations, these are handicaps only to the person who lacks the courage and resourcefulness to turn them into assets. Propaganda is dependent on politics. Even for such front-line requirements as definition of the enemy, yet intelligent exploitation of political goals yields valuable results. Security is an asset to any army. Its price is rarely too high a price to pay for protection, but a selective and flexible censorship can lead to positive advantages. Media, that is, the actual instrumentalities by which propaganda is conveyed, are the ordinance of psychological warfare. They limit the performable job, but they also make it possible in the first place and as in any military operation success depends most of all on proper use of personnel each of these merits discussion the experience drawn upon has in almost all instances been that of world war ii as in most other fields common sense runs a close second to experience as a guide in new methods of struggle political limitations of psychological warfare politics has great influence on the content of psychological warfare the relationship between two warring states is not one of complete severance on the contrary in wartime the relationship becomes abnormal acute sensitive each belligerent takes a strong interest in the other in its affairs and weaknesses during world war ii the american armed forces government and people learned more about the japanese than they would have in twenty years of peacetime education japanese names made news the purposes and weaknesses of the japanese became the objects of hatred and along with the hatred intense scrutiny each warring nation tries to turn the known enemy interest in itself into favorable channels The propagandists of each country try to give the enemy the news which the enemy wants, while so arranging that news as to create a drop in enemy morale, to develop uncertainty in enemy policies, to set enemy cliques into action against each other. The propagandist sometimes becomes very agitated because he recognizes as a technician propaganda opportunities which national policy prohibits his using. The propagandist who is so intent on his target that he forgets his broader responsibilities can often spoil the entire operation. German broadcasters who emphasized the anti-capitalist character of national socialism in the programs beamed to Eastern Europe found that BBC picked up the most tactless statements and repeated them to Western Europe where the germans posed as anti-bolshevik champions of private property american attacks on the germans for associating with japanese monkey men were passed along by the japanese to the chinese who did not like the slur either the most notorious example of backfiring propaganda was of course the famous rum romanism and rebellion phrase which may have made James G. Blaine lose to Grover Cleveland in the national election of 1884. The phrase was used by a Republican clergyman in New York, referring to the Democrats, and implied that the Wets, anti-prohibitionists, Catholics, and Southerners were important components in the Democratic Party, this may have been true but it pleased none of them to have the matter pointed out with such epithets the phrase succeeded in its short-range purpose that of rousing republicans but failed by rousing the enemy even more and offending neutral-minded persons as well the balance between home-front politics and field psychological warfare is difficult to maintain THE CLOSER THE PSYCHOLOGICAL WARFARE OFFICER IS TO THE ENEMY, THE MORE APT HE IS TO THINK OF THE MISSION IN TERMS OF GETTING THE ENEMY TO COME ON OVER. WHY QUIBBLE ABOUT A FEW PHRASES IF THE WORDS WILL SAVE LIVES, MATERIAL AND TIME? UNFORTUNATELY, THE PHRASE THAT IS SUCCESSFUL AGAINST THE ENEMY ON THE BATTLEFRONT MAY PROVE TO BE AN IRRITANT TO THE HOME PUBLIC with the sure consequence that the enemy will pick it up and send it back to do harm. Similarly, home-front propaganda can get out to do the theaters of Operation Harm. Do your utmost! Save lard! Sounds silly to men in combat areas. This can be illustrated by the propaganda problem of the Japanese emperor. It would have helped domestic American politics to call the japanese emperor a monkey a swine a lunatic a witch doctor or comparable names some people did so but if the american government had done so at home for the purpose of rousing its own public the japanese home public would have been roused even more with the net result that the americans would have lost by such attacks if the russians promised as in another instance they are reported to have done good food and warm clothes to the germans on the winter fronts the nazis passed that promise along to the russian civilians who would not think well of stalin's letting fascist invaders be plump and snug while they themselves nearly starved for the enemy audience it is good to portray excellent care of enemy personnel for the home audience it is poor for the home audience it is sometimes good to present the enemy as ruthless lunatics beasts in human form cruel degenerates and so on but the same claims falling into enemy hands can be used to the disadvantage of the originator by being relayed to the enemy home audience furthermore sound psychological warfare must take account of the fact that its ultimate aim is the successful ending of the war for the end to be successful it must occur the fighting must stop and the nations must enter into altered but renewedly peaceful relations propaganda that promises the enemy too much will alienate both allies and home public but propaganda that promises bloody vengeance hurts possible peace movements in the enemy camp. None of the great powers in World War II went so far as to promise specific frontiers for the post-war period. They kept their promises vague, knowing that a definite promise would please somebody, but alienate everyone else. Furthermore, by not promising the expectations of the hopeful parties can be kept at a higher pitch if the french do not know that they will get the tsar they will fight so much the harder but if they are promised the tsar they come in a very short while to regard the promise as a settled matter and proceed to ask for something else meanwhile other possible claimants to the tsar either have a sense of grievance or lose interest in the matter for this reason post-war political uncertainty can be a propaganda asset president roosevelt in his conduct of the political world role of the united states promised manchuria to the chinese korea in due course to the koreans and the integrity of the french colonial empire to the french outside of that he avoided specific promises in another instance to put a complicated matter baldly the british promised palestine to both the arabs and to the jews in world war i and consequently got themselves into a political mess which thirty years later was still a mess definition of the enemy another significant connection between politics and propaganda is found in the definition of the nature of the enemy for combat operations it is easy most of the time to tell who the enemy is he is the man with the other uniform the foreign language the funny color or physique for psychological operations it is not that easy the sound psychological warfare operator will try to get enemy troops to believing that the enemy is not themselves, but somebody else. The king, the Führer, the elite troops, the capitalists. He creates a situation in which he can say, We're not fighting you. This should not be said too soon after extensive use of bombs or mortars. We are fighting the so-and-sos who are misleading you some of the handsomest propaganda of world war two was produced by the soviet experts along this line before the war was over soviet propaganda created a whole gallery of heel-clicking reactionary german generals on the russian side and made out that the unprofessional guttersnipe hitler was ruining the wonderful german army in amateurish campaigns joseph stalin's ringing words the german state and the german volk remain gave the russians a propaganda loophole by which they implied that germany was not the enemy no not germany just the nazis this was superb psychological warfare since the russians had already built up the propaganda thesis that the common people workers and peasants were automatically by virtue of their class loyalty on the side of the worker's country russia that left very few germans on the other side for psychological warfare purposes it is useful to define the enemy as one the ruler two or the ruling group three or unspecified manipulators four or any definite minority it is thoroughly unsound to define the enemy too widely on the other hand too narrow a definition will leave the enemy the opening for a peace offensive if the ruler dies or if the ruling group changes part of its composition it was fear of a peace move by the german generals plus the desire to maintain the precarious anti-german unity of the occupied countries which led the united states and britain to adopt the policy of defining the german reich rather than nazism as the enemy in the instance of japan we defined the enemy as the militarists and fascists with the capitalists a poor second and left the emperor and people with whom to make peace If the psychological warfare campaign is operated for a definite political purpose, it is possible for politics to be an aid rather than a limitation. The operator can describe his own political system in its most radiant light. He can say complimentary things about the enemy leaders or groups who might come over, though he should avoid giving them the kiss of death which the nazis gave certain prominent american isolationists by praising them too much he can promise his own brand of utopia if the politics are defensive vague well-meaning but essentially non-committed psychological warfare has to avoid making blunders in world war ii we could not say that we were against one-party states because our largest ally, Russia, was a one-party state. We could not attack the ruin of free enterprise by the Japanese and German governments, since socialism existed on the Allied side, too. We could not bring up the racial issue, because our own national composition rendered us vulnerable to racial politics at home. There was a huge catalogue of don'ts, usually not written down, but left to individual judgment in every propaganda office. Whenever we violated them, we paid the price in adverse opinion. Promises Finally, psychological warfare must avoid promises that may not be kept. The Americans, during World War II, never promised much as a government, but individual american agents promised all sorts of things which could not be delivered we promised the dutch their homeland and empire by implication we promised the indonesians self-government also by implication and we promised everybody including the japanese access to indonesian raw materials it is highly probable that Individual Americans, off the record, stated that they expected, hoped, or thought that their government would fulfill each of these promises. The three are not compatible, especially the first and second. The New York banker, James Warburg, has written a book, Unwritten Treaty, pointing out that the United States promised just about everything to everybody during the war he was in o w i and he ought to know and that it is going to take a generous wise and intelligent foreign policy to fulfil even in part the promises which we made the promises of the loser are forgotten he can write them off and start international policies with a clean slate but the promises of the victor remain and have to be carried out or else repudiated The psychological warfare officer should not make promises to persons in occupied territory, to friendly guerrillas, to underground movements, or to enemy troops, when those promises are not backed up by word-for-word quotations from the head of his government or someone of cabinet rank. The promises may not conform with promises which other psychological warfare officers are making to other groups, in China, some American officers told the Chinese communists that the Chinese communists were wonderful people and would be sure to get American material aid and political sympathy against Chiang Kai shek. At the same time, other American officers told the Chinese government people that the United States did not propose to short circuit recognition of the Chinese government or to interfere in internal chinese affairs the two sets of chinese heard about the american promises and for a while could not decide whether americans were fools or liars much the same sort of thing happened in our dealings with french serbs and poles it is a poor piece of work for a combat officer to promise elections liberties labor rights or even food to people in his path unless the rear echelon people will be able to deliver the goods when they come up. And it is an irresponsible radio or leaflet man who makes promises without finding out whether his government is in a position, in relation to the political situation, to back up the promises one way or other. His nation itself will be called a liar if he slips up. SECURITY LIMITATIONS Another serious set of limitations arises from security problems. The very conduct of psychological warfare encroaches upon perfectionist plans for security. Security is designed to keep useful information from reaching the enemy. Propaganda operations are designed to get information to him. Security is designed to keep the enemy from knowing true figures, but propaganda must have a lot of good, current, true information if it is to be believed. Security demands that military and naval news be withheld until the extent of the enemy's knowledge is known. Propaganda is designed to tell the enemy the news faster than his own sources tell him, thus discrediting enemy news. Security demands that dubious persons, intimately associated with the enemy, be kept away from communications facilities. Propaganda officers have to keep an eye open for people who speak the enemy language well, who can address the enemy sympathetically and get his attention, who have a keen appreciation of the enemy culture. Often it is plain, psychological warfare and security officers get in each other's way, this conflict was lessened by american censorship organization during world war ii the united states office of censorship under byron price achieved a distinguished record of smooth reasonable and modest operation it took an adult view of the intelligence of the american public and permitted bad news to reach the public except when the services or the white house intervened much of the story of this office is told in theodore coop's exciting book weapon of silence which makes it plain that censorship sought to avoid developing negative psychological warfare campaigns on its own initiative the usual wartime security procedures apply with special force to psychological warfare operations civilian employees who are qualified as political experts as writers, or as propaganda analysts, are often well-educated and artistic. They are apt to value classified information highly for the pleasure which they can derive by violating security, that is, by showing people they can trust how much they are in on certain operations. The temptation to show off is almost irresistible the vice is not unknown even in military echelons an atmosphere of excessive security easily degenerates into melodrama bringing out in many individuals a silly zest for displaying to others how much top-secret information they possess where military and civilian personnel work together this human weakness is stimulated by rivalry even among the germans in world war 2 propaganda groups were easily infected by an atmosphere of gossip and intrigue end of section 6 recording by linda johnson